Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. This is a special episode of a panel on due diligence in the crypto space from the Time Summit, a bridge alternatives event. I had a brief but very interesting discussion with Suna Saeed, founder and CEO of family office Nima Capital, Eddie Duslack of Texas Children's Hospital, and Joel Gancher of Gancher Family Partners. In it, they discuss how they invest in the nascent Web 3.0 space, as outlined by Polychain Capital's Olaf Carlson Wee earlier that day. They also talk about why a year of experience in crypto is so valuable, how they determine who the serious players are in the space, and why the speed of disruption from the internet revolution gives them motivation to get into the crypto markets. This was a fantastic conference with great speakers and questions from guests. Enjoy. On May 11th and 12th, some of the most interesting humans from around the globe will come together in Brooklyn for the Ethereal Summit, hosted by Consensus, to collaborate on building the decentralized future. To register and receive 10% off, go to etherealsummit.com and enter the code UNCHAINED10. This episode is brought to you by Quantstamp. Quantstamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. The technology is being developed by a team of PhDs with over 500 Google Scholar citations. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. Hi, everyone. Hello? Hello? Oh, okay. Hi, everyone. We're going to get started with our next panel. This one is about investment and operational due diligence hurdles in crypto assets. And my panelists are Eddie Duzlak, Assistant Director of the Investment Office at Texas Children's Hospital, Joel Gansher, CIO at Gansher Family Partners, and Suna Saeed, Founder and CEO of Nima Capital. So let's talk about operational due diligence and we've got a a little we've only got like about a half an hour so why don't we just start right in with the different types of investments that investors can make in this space and what the pros and cons are of those yeah i think from like an actual like evaluating funds they don't actually look that dissimilar from like a traditional investment that you're probably used to evaluating like you have some that you know, Block Tower that spoke yesterday, like more of a short-term kind of discretionary trader. It's just the underlying assets are crypto as opposed to to equities. You have some that are kind of more on, like look more like a long-biased equity manager where they might own 10 assets, have, you know, kind of a three to five-year time horizon. Um, you have others that are kind of more on like the venture capital end of the spectrum where they're looking at smaller Opportunities where they're trying to help the management teams or the developers um, scale, um, and they have more of kind of a venture capital approach. Some that are for- focusing more on like ICOs, and so there's there's a broad range kind of across that. That um, that you know, I think when you actually get to the underlying strategies, it's similar to evaluating any other manager that somebody from an institutional investor would be used to to evaluating from like a style, what's their competitive advantage, all of those types of things. 
Um, um, I think it's but just, Eddie, I just wanted to yeah. also frame this because you were only describing the crypto hedge funds, right? Yep. Because even with with beyond that, what are, yeah. what are some of the other investment opportunities? Yeah. So I think right now, I mean, it's primarily looking at you know whether it's cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin um, or 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 others like Monero. Um, there are tokens like utility tokens. You heard. You heard Olaf speak a little earlier on, on things like Gollum mm-hmm. or Filecoin that provide access to a network that you know, has some kind of utility to, to the end user. Um, and then beyond that, there's, there's, uh, there's ICOs, there's funding early stage kind of management teams um, or developers to, to pursue and, and kind of develop a protocol. Um, those are, you know, in my mind, kind of some of the big, bigger categories. And I think there's, there's other areas like, you know, what Olaf was talking about earlier with Dharma. I mean, down the road, being able to be a lender on a platform like that um, is, is, you know, opportunities that you kind of don't, uh, don't, aren't there yet today, but that will develop over time. Or investing in things like CryptoKitties, if, if that's kind of more, more of your fancy. Yeah, actually, there are a couple of opportunities um, out there, and there are certain platforms that are attempting to enable, you know, lending, utilizing a blockchain. Um, you know, there's mining. Uh, there are opportunities to invest in mining. So it, it's been a relatively um, rich opportunity set, I would say, which, which is only growing. Like How well these actually turn out is, is another issue. I mean, because there are plenty of risks associated with these that like, we don't typically see um, in traditional funds. And Suna, I know you are investing also in some of the VC firms and the startups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're invested across the spectrum. We're invested in crypto funds, blockchain VC funds. We invest mostly directly, pre-ICO, seed stage VC. Um, and what we think it comes down to, which is actually something you taught me early on, Laura, is um, the underlying talent. Um, so, for example, as you explained to me, again, Early on, you were like someone like a Joey Krug who built Augur, um, which was one of the first companies built um, on top of Ethereum. Like following what he does and seeing, you know, what projects does he like? Who does he, you know, write articles about? Or how is he talking about mining or scaling? Or, for example, like a Joseph Poon who wrote Lightning Network um, for Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, um, Recently, over the last couple of months, also wrote Plasma with Vitalik Buterin. Like, really get into the underlying talent, follow them, see what they're doing, um, and seeing how the technology is accelerating and leapfrogging upon itself, and then seeing, okay, what are the new applications? And to that end, something that we're finding is an exciting new development is um, there are some investors and funds that are focusing on the application layer, so they're uh, investing on the protocol layer. Um, like, for example, there's an, uh, um, a firm called IDEO. They're a design firm. And they have been working on user interface, user exchange dynamics, network design, community building around protocols. And um, Joseph Poon, for example, said this is the most exciting fund, because they're launching a fund that is going to come out of the ecosystem by far, because they're going to help scale out the technology globally in a way that I think we all know is going to be possible. And it's just a question of the technology finding its scaling solutions, like Olaf said, and 
um, actually, I spoke with Olaf about this fund as well, and he said that's amazing to focus on the dApps at this stage because it feels almost a little too early, which is the time to get in. Like, invest before it's obvious. I think that's just generally a theme that we follow as a family office. So we apply that to everything. Yeah, I, I would just say that, like, that, that sounds really interesting. We can talk about it later. Like, the, the interesting thing for investors today is, like, everything is sort of inefficient today. Every, you know, like, there's nothing in this space where you could say, all right, everybody's got the joke Right, we were talking yesterday um, at the conference about the lack of alpha in markets. Like when, when you look for alpha, you want like complexity and people who don't understand it. You want volatility. Like it's it's really all here, you know. And actually, one other thing I guess you you, you want is uh, alpha donors, like retail investors who are willing to give you their alpha, right? And 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 that's what like this space is providing. Today and so while I think that's totally totally great, I think on a slightly more mundane level, there still is a lot of opportunity um, for normal long only investing in this space. Absolutely, totally. And agree. because we've been talking about sort of the different layers at which you can invest, there's like the protocol layer and there's the app layer. How and you know there's these venture capital funds, the hedge funds, the um, the startups. How do you determine kind of which type of investment you want to make? And what are, what are the differences, like, in returns or around strategy? Well, I, I have my answer. Like, I, I know that I don't want to be competing with Olaf for, you know, like, determining where I want to put my money in, like, an ICO or a project. And so, you know, much like I did for many years, like, looking at, you know, stocks and, and bonds, utilizing hedge funds and experts to do it. Like we, we will almost always utilize uh, a manager uh, or fund structure to to make those investments. And, and do any of you want to add on that? We, we're probably more in the same boat. Okay. Well, I also wanted to ask because oh, I go can, ahead. Yeah. So um, on the crypto trading side, we as a firm actually learned a valuable lesson, which um, was that the traders definitely do a better job trading and that being on the inside of the ecosystem is actually not even that helpful. So like we definitely bucket things into crypto, blockchain, VC. We have different people in the firm focusing on the different areas. For example, in the beginning when we started investing in crypto, um, we had competing funds to see who would do better. I had my little fund and the traders had their fund. And um, I thought, this is going to be such a layup. I'm totally going to outperform them because I'm in the you know, center of the ecosystem on all these Telegram chats. I have the advisors like Joseph Poon and you know, Charlie Noyes and Naval Ravikant, and you know, they're constantly giving me the updates. And I have to say the market, like I kept trading on the information, and more often than not, the market just went the other way. I know we had like around the Bitcoin fork, for example, and things like that. And my traders actually far and away, like, outperform me. So it's funny, like, in some ways, some asset classes in the area are actually more, um, you know, follow more of a traditional, like, technical trading framework with some, obviously, fundamental information. But it's not necessarily such an advantage to be, like, inside the, you know, value creation. On the other end of the spectrum, like, the early stage seed 
stuff, it's definitely helpful to be talking to the insiders and seeing, you know, what's already been done, where is there still white space, how is the technology advancing? Well, one, one thing about what you just said is that I do wonder over a different time frame, might you actually end up, you know, beating them, right, on the short-term yeah. time frame, maybe, especially if, it, if you were yeah. doing your test over the fall, then that, you know, may not have worked out super well for you. Yeah, but actually, another- sorry, look, I, I actually want to comment on that, because you did mention it all. In terms of funds, it's definitely helpful to have people who, like Metastable or Olaf, like, that's the perfect scenario, where they have the technical ability, but are also able to, like Lucas Ryan does at Mediastable, look at the underlying protocol and analyze it and all that. Yeah, I don't want to take away from that. The Ethereal Summit, hosted by Consensus, is anything but your average blockchain conference. Join builders, philosophers, policymakers, artists, and humanitarians from around the world on May 11th and 12th at the Knockdown Center in Brooklyn for two days of storytelling and knowledge sharing around how we can build our decentralized future together using blockchain technology. No sitting around and listening to boring presentations. Come participate, experience, and have a blast with folks like Joe Lubin, Amber Baldette, Michael Casey, and thousands more. To register and receive a 10% discount, go to etherealsummit.com and enter the code UNCHAINED10. Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone, and with the exploding growth of smart contracts, that solution just won't scale. The team at Quantstamp is developing a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with the growing demand. Being built by a team of PhDs who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, Quantstamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. Well, so what I want to know also is in this current wild west of crypto, how do you determine who the serious players are and who you can trust? Because there's a lot of people that you can't trust. As we've seen, there's tons of scams. There's a lot of unserious people that are just getting everyday people to throw money at them in initial coin offerings. So how do you determine who you should work with or who is uh, legitimate or serious? Yeah, I can go first. I mean, I, I think for us, like being a children's hospital, like fiduciary for a children's hospital, like that's something that we think about a lot, clearly. And so for, a lot of it comes down to who are venture capitalists that we respect and where are they allocating their money. So, I mean, I think one of the, I think inflection points for like endowments, foundations, other institutional investors, like really rolling up their sleeves on the space was when, I think it was March or April of last year, um, it came out that like Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Founders Fund, and others were investing in Polychain and, and Metastable. That was me. I broke that news in July. Yeah, no, it was a great article. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I do think that was an inflection point for this this people in our seat to be able to say, okay, if I'm scrambling for capacity to get into this next Sequoia fund, like why does it not make sense for me to look at something where they're willing to pay an external manager some kind of fees? Like that seems like it would be somewhat of a high conviction idea. And then it also makes it easier to pitch to a board where you say that, you know, we're co-investing alongside this manager that we have a lot of respect for. So our network has kind of, our way of kind of getting into that, of like who to trust, has been through 
you know, our, our GP relationships on the venture capital side. Yeah, the one thing I would add is like absolutely, you know, like I agree with, you know, like both of you guys. Like it, it's all about your network, which is no different from the investing that most of us do when we look at long short equity funds or macro funds, right? You use your network, you figure out who's credible. But but the one thing that's a little different is that there there's really there's such limited history in this space. Like there's not a lot of precedent. This truly is an experiment. And, like, there's the, the idea of sort of dog ears in the crypto world. And, like, Olaf's been doing it since, you know, 11 or whatever. Like, he's, he's like the George Soros of this industry, even though he's 28 years old, right? And so I think, like, with each additional year of experience, it's tremendously valuable, like, just to have seen all the mayhem that has occurred in this industry. So, so I value, personally... I, I look at experience quite quite a lot when I look to allocate to managers. Yeah, there's something funny that Olaf said to me before. Um, he was like talking about you know some of the crypto crashes or something, or maybe we were in a downturn at that moment. And he said, "Oh my God, this is nothing compared to when it went from 32 to two dollars." Like he, you know, he was remembering like all the way back in 2011, and back yeah. then he was like 21 or something, and I put like most of his life savings in, and it devastated him. So um, anyway, and Suna, do you have more to say on that? Yeah, I agree. Follow the talent, which luckily in this ecosystem is still, it's such a small community, actually. It's not hard to go and, you know, get into the weeds, to go on Medium or Twitter and see what are the thought leaders saying. And that's the beauty of diligencing this. It's still a small ecosystem. So if you get in now, even if you're just intellectually curious or interested and don't necessarily want to invest yet, it's really fun to just get the ethos and understand how is the technology going to unfold and what are these people saying about how the world is going to evolve along with it. And speaking of who um, you know you work with, what about on within an institutional investor? Who within that company or entity should be dealing with uh, this type of investment? Well, I think, um, like, I, I don't know exactly who, but like the volatility is such like the, the most dangerous thing for an institution is to to get cold feet at the wrong time, right? That's what destroys many potentially good investments over the long term. It becomes too path dependent. You draw down, you get out, and, and like there's no better case study for path dependency than the crypto world. And so what, what I would say, I don't work for an institution anymore, but I did for many years is like what I would say is anybody who has a right to pull you out of that investment, like I would argue they should have a hand in the diligence so that they can really appreciate, not just reading a memo. Like this will draw, like there are many good funds that have presented here over the last, many of them drew down 50% in the first quarter, I'm sure. I'm not sure, I would guess, right? And so unless, unless you're in it, Unless you have an appreciation and you've built up that knowledge, I think it's very hard to live with that. So, so that's the only thing I would add on the institutional side. Yeah, I think the thing I'd say is most often it seems like it's whoever was investing personally and then they get really excited and they're like, hey, why shouldn't we do this for the actual group that we're, we're managing money for? Um, and so that I've seen that kind of come across multiple areas like I, I focus more on like equity public market strategies but I was excited and it didn't make sense to not have not be looking at it on behalf of like uh, in it, the institution we're managing money for but more often than not it seems like it's kind of more within like the venture capital seat like whoever's overseeing that 
just because of the relationships and the fact that they're investing in this ecosystem and their network and all of that. So I think it's probably somewhere in between, but I, I think it is kind of, since it is a new territory, it's kind of open to whoever can you know, be able to, to add value within that. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Okay, and then as we were talking about in the earlier panel. Sorry, can oh, I mention uh-huh. something about So um, I actually agree with you that it's actually more about mindset than what particular vertical they're in. Um, so finding someone who has an entrepreneurial mindset but also a long-term investing mindset makes a lot of sense. And somebody who's organically passionate about it, who yeah. wants to read about it at midnight and get into, you know, what's Plasma or what are the scaling solutions or what's Olaf saying... There has to be that intrinsic passion that's um, involved in it. And I think it has to be personal to some extent that we have, that the person has a connection to the world that we're in now and a connection to the world that might come about. As a family office, money is very personal to us, right? Like my constituents are my kids and my grandkids. I feel like, man. I'm about to say an expletive, but I'm not like, I better not miss this. I better not like miss, you know, the next internet wave. And I better not lose this money to, um, you know, companies that are about to be disrupted because the technology is going to go like this, parabolic, and then a whole bunch of, you know, companies like Blockbuster or banks, you know, could really just get wiped out very quickly as we saw, you know, as the internet ramped up, you know, newspapers, things that were considered very safe for, for example, family offices were just, you know, almost overnight and you couldn't get out in time. Like I think from an institutional mindset, it's really important to look at these larger scale movements and understand what's going to happen before we can see it yet, because that's the time to look and prepare. For example, um, Facebook did a study that showed that 92% of millennials have an extreme distrust of banks. And if I even just look, I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, I have a really hard time imagining them actually walking into a bricks-and-mortar bank because they already do so much on their phone. My daughter, you know, she's coding apps with her girlfriends. Like, it's such a different mindset. And it's important, I think, for us to have the neuroplasticity to not look at the world that's here now, but to kind of extrapolate out. What is that going to look like? Because when you have a technology that gives power to the people, that's more efficient, more secure, like those things do win out. Like it's a logical connection. You know, it's an interesting point, actually, um, which, which makes this technology a, a little bit different 
is that you know you talked about blockbuster and and the changing of the guard and and value accruing here and declining here but what's really interesting is is that like if this takes off and it is an if right there are lots of risks but but if it takes off and if Olaf's vision is any close to you know close to being true then like this value will not accrue to equity markets like which i think is a really interesting idea and so like the S&P like Amazon wins these guys lose but the S&P might be sort of similar like if if Tezos wins you know and they disrupt Uber and Twi- you know who knows like there there could be a real changing of the guard of where that value is accruing in the ecosystem which i think is sort of an interesting idea and and not to just pass the baton down here but but i think on that point too is is like you can assign a probability like you can say that what Olaf said has a 10% likelihood of succeeding. But imagine what the prices of these underlying assets are going to look like if that vision succeeds and assign like a probability multiplied by that. And I, I know that's a little simplistic, but I mean, we're investing is in the game of like probability. And so I, I think sometimes like there's a tendency to think about things in terms of like it's all or nothing. It's 100% or zero. And uh, I think that's part of why i became excited about it and interested is just because of that, you know, say it's a 50, 60, whatever probability you assign, but multiply that by the return and think about it also somewhat as a hedge for disrupting the traditional business models that that we all hold through the equity markets. And I think that's a critical link that a lot of people who are kind of at zero may, may, may want to think about. So I totally agree with you on all those points. Um, as I was telling somebody the other day, the likelihood that things stay the same is pretty much zero. And so, you know, there is going to be something that comes out of this technology. However, I want to reference what Suna said earlier about Blockbuster and about how fortunes can change so quickly and turn that on its head a little bit because we are in such early days in this space. We've seen so many hacks of exchanges. We've seen a lot of people losing their private keys and losing lots of money. So when you are investing and you're doing your due diligence, how do you account for the way that the various um, institutions or companies or um, protocols that you're investing, how do you, you know, make sure that they're following best practices when it comes to security and that you're not going to lose your investment? Well, I, I, don't, you know, like, I don't think there are established best practices yet, which is one of the challenges uh, of doing diligence. Now, th- there are some things that, that folks are doing. So, for example, there's um, a process of whitelisting where you, you limit the um, addresses to which funds can be sent so you don't there's no fat finger like because once you send bitcoin and you send to the wrong address like it's it's gone right so what steps can you take to ensure that cannot happen right in terms of like we just heard this panel about you know qualified custodians and i think people are now starting to move in that direction but but in in my you know limited experience over the last 12 months like i think it's a very much get in you know, like roll up your sleeves and, and try to understand how it works, and b- because there there are no easy answers to what is best practice that, that I've come across to many aspects of crypto investing. And I think like where this is very different from like a traditional fund evaluating a fund or a strategy is in operational due diligence. And I think that I put a twist on the panelists yesterday. We the four active managers said that you know don't try this at home. Like I'd say you actually should try this at home, but in a small amount, because you will learn so much and you will ask such better questions of the fund managers. Because 
when you go into Coinbase, buy your Bitcoin, and then you want to send it to you know an exchange so that you can make a trade, like you know you want it, like to to your point, like you mess up one single digit, like it's gone, like and and that's a stressful situation and satoshi doesn't like pick up the help desk and like say let me get you your money back like you're 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 in, you're in a bad situation and then when you get to the exchange you you know it'll look and feel a lot like kind of a traditional like schwab or you have like limit orders market orders etc but then once you get it off like say you're buying zcash or something you can't put that back in a vault at coinbase you have to go and buy like a hardware wallet or some kind of wallet to store it and so then you're like, okay, well, where do I do that? And there's like Trezor or Ledger, and which one should I use? And then when you plug in your Trezor, you always hope that the money's still there because it's the thing you bought for $100 off Amazon, and like that's kind of stressful too. And so understanding like all of those types of things is like a reality of kind of where we are within this landscape. And you will be able to understand, like, okay, if a hacker got control of my computer and saw me sending it to this address, like, are they using private VPNs? Or are they, like, making trades at coffee shops on, like, public Wi-Fi? Um, are they whitelisting the addresses so they can't do that? Who has access to the funds? Like, you can have a trading error, but it's actually, an, you know, an intentional allocation of funds to, like, a, a separate account or something like that that... There's a lot of areas where this could be problematic and rogue traders and all those types of things. And so I think that's where this is like very different and very important at this age in the, in the life cycle is to make sure like the operational side is, is buttoned up and in a good place. Yeah, and I totally agree about learning how to play with it yourself because even if you have just a few Bitcoin on one of those little hardware devices, that's in the tens of thousands of dollars right yeah. there, which most yeah. people are not used to holding some little, you know, it's like the size of a USB stick that's worth that much money and not losing it, which um, can be a problem for some people like like me because I'm really good at losing things. Yeah. Um, so one other thing I wanted to ask about was volatility in this space. How does that affect your influence or affect or influence your investment decisions? I think for us, I mean, you know, volatility, you can adjust for sizing and just sizing it smaller. I think there's also, um, it also makes you, like, it makes us more interested in cost averaging in. So, like, a venture structure made more sense because you have a three-year investment period and you're kind of cost averaging in over that period. Um, so I think it makes you, it makes us more attentive to, like, one, we want to cost average in, and two, we want to make sure it's kind of sized appropriately from that. Well, it, it actually presents an interesting problem because, like, ev- the, the perceived wisdom is, you know, put 1% or 2%. I, I don't know what the number du jour is. Like, so if it goes up a lot, you make money, and if you lose, like, you don't have to worry. But, but, but a strange thing happened. Like, you invested money in June of last year, and you put, like, 1.5%, and all of a sudden it was, like, 4 or 5%. It's like, wait, I don't want to lose 5%. So, like, the whole sizing issue gets very wacky. And, and it's almost like trying to, to account for an exposure of an option, let's say, or delta adjusting an option in your book. Um, and typically, at least if you're investing in funds, you don't have the option, to use the word again, to, to get out quickly. So, so the, size, the sizing issue presents its, its own challenges, we've, we've found. I mean, thankfully, the market took care of my 5% position. It's back back down to two. So, so the market solved at that time. But So I think one of the things that might have been affecting the market is the regulatory uncertainty. How do you guys factor that in? So, again, I think it's really important to um, do one's research 
and um, read up as much as possible on you know how the CFTC is thinking about this, how the SEC is thinking about this, um, you know, all the way up to Mnuchin and Trump, and um, you know, I was asked to write a um, policy proposal for the administration, and um, I think to the extent that we can take some of the fear away and focus on the way this our administration can create a legacy around power to the people um, would be really helpful. Um, and to understand that is obviously something that we can all get involved in. And then I think something else that's helpful in terms of regulatory, because it is moving so fast, you need to, it's changing every day, to look outside the U.S., how other countries like Switzerland um, and um, you know certain parts of Asia, Japan are looking at things because at some point um, countries are going to have to adjust their regulation in concert with one another because otherwise there are going to be these large imbalances. So with the volatility and the regulation, I think both of them, it's important to look at long-term trend lines and say, does this make sense in the long run? And to look at it as a long-term investment proposal while educating oneself and tweaking things along the way. And how do you know if something makes sense in the long run without re- the regulatory clarity? I was just going to add, like, to your previous question on, on regulation, I mean, I actually think, like, most people think of it as, like, this uncertainty and it's scary, but in, in a lot of cases, like, regulation has actually been good. I mean, watch, go to YouTube and watch Big Connect video of, like, this guy standing on stage screaming about how much money he's going to make everyone. Like, it is, like, nauseating how fraud-like it, it was. And, like, that's where the regulators got involved with, like, I believe it was, like, a cease and desist letter. And so there's, there, at least thus far, like, part of the knock on this space has been that, you know, it is filled with all these types of people. And, uh, and I, I think that where the SEC has taken action has actually been in areas where, like, it's, like, good, you know, that, that, that should not happen because there's like, you know, retail investors that are getting duped. And so that makes sense. And it seems like on the larger scale of how to characterize these as, as securities or not and, and kind of like the recent testimonies from CFTC chairman um, Giancarlo and others, like it's been pretty positive. Um, like Giancarlo was, he gave like a story about how his, his daughter is really passionate about it and how we don't want to like you know, the younger generation is, like, really interested in this, so we don't want to, like, dan- like squash their dreams, you know? And and that's, you know, as CFTC chairman, like, that's, that's there's actually, like, I feel, like, more um, positive, although it creates uncertainty, but with uncertainty creates, you know, I think opportunity, too. Okay, great. So we are running out of time, but I just wanted to see if there were any questions. Nope. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much.